0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Sue Thompson and I am the head of America's distribution for the Spider ETF business at State Street Global Advisors. I'd like to thank our host, Nicholas, and the entire team at Capital Inc. for inviting me here today to talk about the future of our industry and some key themes that we're seeing play out as a result of this global pandemic. It feels as though speakers like me, especially this year, are almost obligated to use the term unprecedented at least a dozen or so times during every speech about what we've seen in 2020. As of today, over 26 million people have been infected with the COVID 19 virus. And worldwide, there have been over 871,000 deaths, with the United States accounting for 22% of those deaths. As our economy shut down, due to this virus, we saw unemployment spike from an all-time low of 3.8% in February, which was the lowest in record in a post-World War II years, to the highest on record in April at 14.4%. And those unemployment numbers may well be understated, given that during the same period of time from February to April, we also saw the labor participation rate sharply decline. Also during that time, especially between February 20th and March 23rd, we saw the market plunge, losing a third of its value. And then we saw, wait for it, an unprecedented bounce back, despite the ongoing economic woes, which eventually saw the S&P 500 reach new highs by the end of the summer. Now, as we come into election season, we're seeing volatility rise again. Amidst this backdrop, we've also seen an outpouring of frustration and widespread protests calling for police reform, and transforming our national conversations about race, social justice, and inequality. The policy responses that we've seen as a result of these events include unprecedented actions by the Federal Reserve to pump trillions of dollars into new and expanded programs to help companies, state and local governments, who are suffering real financial damage from the coronavirus. All of these events have impacted our industry in ways that were sometimes predictable and sometimes unforeseen. I'd like to highlight five key trends that we see as a result of these unprecedented times. Three are investment themes and two are themes that impact the human beings in our industry, our human capital. The first is a widespread acknowledgement of gold Finally, as a strategic asset class, we've had an opportunity to speak with many investors over the last several months. And as the price of gold rose and money started pouring into gold ETFs, we began to wonder, how much of this is opportunistic buying? As we began to pulse clients, the overwhelming response that we received was that clients viewed this as a strategic asset allocation decision. They looked at the 0.0 and the 0.07 monthly correlation to the S&P 500 and the Ag, respectively, that's been there since the 70s, and realized the true diversification benefits that arise from that allocation. They also focused on the fact that during the last 14 equity market downturns, gold provided an average positive return of over 6%, while the S&P 500 pulled back over 24%. Finally, as the Federal Reserve released its statement on longer-run goals and monetary policy strategy at the end of August, it became clear that the new statement will allow the Fed to overshoot a 2% inflation target. And while we don't necessarily see inflation as an issue at present, it appears many investors are in violent agreement with the recent Oxford Economics paper that finds that the optimal allocation to gold rises more in an inflationary scenario, as well as if you're a more risk averse investor in a limited growth and low inflation scenario. So, while there still may be some opportunistic buying of gold, it does appear that there is a true shift to gold as a strategic asset class. The second trend has been the absolute tsunami of fixed income ETF adoption. As of September 3rd of this year, Bond ETFs have now amassed $142 billion in inflows year to date. This is roughly $13 billion shy of the 2019 record, which indicates that 2020's full year figure is likely going to set yet another new record. Despite this rapid growth, fixed income ETFs still only represent 2.1% of the total investable fixed income universe and only 5.4% of the U.S. high yield market. So there's still a lot of room left to grow. We also saw that during the Q1 COVID-19 induced volatility, liquidity dried up across fixed income markets. Even most liquid markets like US Treasuries exhibited signs of stress. However, during this period, fixed income ETFs had record trading volumes because they provided liquidity at a time when investors demanded it the most. From April to July, 2020, we saw fixed income ETFs post four consecutive months of inflows greater than $20 billion a month, a record streak. By comparison, equity ETFs haven't seen this degree of inflows in any period over the past five years. These flows, combined with positive market movement in many of the fixed income sub-asset classes, pushed fixed income ETF assets to over $1 trillion, for the first time. Although we still routinely educate investors on the short-lived divergences between price and NAV during stress periods of time that can occur with fixed income ETFs, increasingly investors have come to understand the reasons for these perceived dislocations and they now recognize the risk-clearing price as a better representation of the true asset class valuation. In other words, investors finally understand ETFs as price discovery tools. On March 23rd of this year, in an effort to offer stability and improve liquidity in the corporate credit market, the Fed announced that it would begin purchasing individual US investment-grade bonds as well as broad corporate bond ETFs. This, you got it? Unprecedented action was the first time in the Fed's 107-year history that it purchased corporate bonds and the first time that it purchased ETFs. Now, a common misconception is that the Feds purchased the majority of the high-yield and investment-grade bond ETFs that saw inflows in 2020. However, the Fed only accounts for 6.4% of the overall investment-grade corporate and high-yield bond inflows as of June 30th of this year. So some of the stories that came out during that time, which questioned whether the Fed's buying of ETFs was shoring up the ETF market are demonstrably false. We believe we're gonna continue to see significant adoption of fixed income ETFs, both as investment vehicles, particularly as we see a proliferation of active fixed income strategies being wrapped in an ETF wrapper as well as the ongoing use of fixed income ETFs as capital markets instruments. For example, in high yield, ETF trading may have begun to supplant volumes in synthetic products, such as total return swaps and CDX, because investors often prefer the funded exposure due to its performance profile, which better matches the cash bond market. So we see a very bright future indeed for fixed income ETFs. The last investment theme that has gone from tipping point to turning point is ESG, Environmental Social Governance Investing. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't start this theme with an acknowledgement about the US regulatory environment regarding pension plans which reflects, if you will, the nation's current partisan divide with debate raging on as to whether fiduciary duties of loyalty and prudence should include consideration of ESG factors. We at State Street Global Advisors believe that the rule against taking ESG considerations into account is profoundly misguided. We agree with regulators that managers investing assets on behalf of pension plans have a fiduciary duty to maximize the probability of attractive long-term returns, but that means considering the range of all risks and opportunities that have a material impact on returns. We support consideration of ESG factors because there's a growing body of research that demonstrates that the so-called pecuniary factors, which investment managers are meant to focus on, do include material ESG factors. And those are only growing in significance as structural shift in economics and business models elevate the value companies derive, particularly from intangible assets. That said, we have many clients who believe in ESG because it reflects their values, not because of the value it brings. And the pandemic exposed very real health, social and political inequities around the world. Investors from the quiet of quarantine were provided an opportunity to reflect on the values that are most important to themselves and their families. As a result, we're seeing investors increasingly ready to take a stand with their investment choices. Recognizing that ESG tends to mostly be in the spotlight during extreme events like the 2019 heat wave in Europe or the wildfires in Australia and California, and even here in my own home state of Arizona, and now the global pandemic, it's important to recognize that beyond the headlines, interest in ESG has been growing for quite some time. As of May 2020, global ESG, ETF and index mutual fund assets were at 170 billion, but we believe that's likely to grow to more than 1.3 trillion by 2030. And we think one catalyst driving this is in fact this very turbulent year. When we look at the impact of this pandemic, it becomes clear that the health, social, and financial struggles it has created are not shared equally. The people least able to combat the negative effect of the virus are the ones shouldering the biggest burdens. Thus, a spotlight is shown on ESG issues, and many investors have concluded they can no longer look the other way. We also see this year um, when stay-at-home orders had younger adults moving back in with mom and dad Um, Boomer parents and their stuck-at-home children are actually having real conversations about personal values. This growing dialogue naturally flows into discussions around giving and family philanthropy. So we see ESG investing as becoming a bridge between boomers who are desperately trying to hold on to our youthful dreams of making the world a better place and our children who want to ensure that their actions, including their investments, are aligned with their values. This feels like a natural segue into the human capital themes that we see playing out. The first is ongoing fee compression and what that means to the future of the asset management industry. Clearly, fee compression has been going on and has been an ongoing theme for a considerable period of time. It's not just because costs in all forms matter more than ever, now that we are in this lower rate environment for longer, it's also the result of technology-driven transparency about how much of an investment return is the result of market exposure or beta, how much is the result of factor exposure, and how much is really derived from genuine skill-based manager alpha. Obviously, technology has also helped the industry provide investors with exposure to markets in a far more cost-efficient way. When you think about it, that's the real innovation of ETFs and the enduring driver behind the shift from active to indexing. So how has the global pandemic exacerbated that trend? A recent National Bureau of Economic Research paper analyzed capital flows in and out of active mutual funds During the COVID-19 crisis, which they defined as the 10-week period between February 20th and April 30th, they found that active funds experienced steady outflows of about 1.3% of assets under management. Those outflows were rapid during the market crash, but they continued, albeit at a slower pace, during the market rebound after March 23rd. By contrast, although there was considerable volatility in ETF flows, over that same time period, total flows into ETFs was over $23 billion. But fee compression is more than just the move from active to indexed. It's also the move to lower cost ETFs. A recent Barron's article reported that the asset weighted expense ratio for stock ETFs dropped to just under 17 basis points in the first half of this year. Even high fee strategies like um, actively managed ETFs, saw asset-weighted expense ratios fall faster than average. That means ETF investors are now paying $388 million less in fees a year than they were in December. And that's both because of asset managers lowering their fees, but also because of these choices that investors are making when they favor low-cost ETFs. Obviously, this is great for investors, but it does mean that as asset managers, We need to think long and hard about how to adapt in this environment. As we all started working from home, questions began to emerge about the future of distribution, about the future of our industry. Would there still be a need for external wholesalers in a post COVID-19 world? Would clients adapt and begin to prefer a more virtual sales interaction? What types of investments in technology Would be needed to compete effectively in a virtual world and in a time of compressed margins would there be the managerial courage to make those investments the responses of asset management firms have varied dramatically through this crisis some like my firm understood the humanitarian impact and vowed there would be no layoffs during the crisis others offered buyouts sometimes to as much as 75% of their employees. Asset managers are looking at a multitude of options, from introducing or expanding hybrid wholesaler forces to M&A activity in order to derive scale. This particular trend continues to play out even as I speak, in real time. And although I predict we're going to see ongoing innovations in how to best service clients in a more virtual setting, this is going to continue to be challenging. I'd like to conclude with our final human capital theme, and that is the critical importance of inclusion and diversity in our industry. There is ample research that shows the importance of diversity and companies' performance. Let's just take one study by McKinsey, which examined over 1,000 companies in 12 countries. The study revealed that companies in the top quartile for gender diversity on executive teams were 21% more likely to have above-average profitability than those in the bottom quartile. Businesses in the top quartile for ethnic and cultural diversity were 33% more likely to outperform on profitability. And yet here we are, still, where firms owned by women and minorities manage just 1.3% of the $69 trillion in assets under management in the U.S. financial services industry. Amid these protests of systemic racism, asset management firms have released a wave of statements condemning discrimination and praising diversity. Nice talk, but here's a better idea. Let's do something about it. If we're going to hold portfolio companies to account with our stewardship efforts, we need to walk the walk. We have all been so fortunate to be a part of this wonderful industry that has given so much to us. It's time for us to give back. We need to address issues of inclusion, starting early on with financial literacy for all children. We need to ensure that we eliminate bias in hiring and promotion. We need to ensure that the young women and people of color who come into this industry see themselves reflected in the leadership at the very top. There are so many ways to get involved. So many ways to make a difference. Whether it's getting active in the industry group that I help co-found, Women in ETFs, little plug there, or the National Association of Securities Professionals, you can make a difference. We must make a difference. So those are our five themes that I see, and you may have gotten off relatively light because I think I only used unprecedented maybe five times in this talk. Thank you again for joining me today. And thank you as well to our hosts at Capital Link. I hope you enjoy the rem- remainder of the conference.